You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis with Mike McIntyre. And Tennis Canada, along with National Bank, are launching a long-term gender equality strategy with a major gender gap having been identified within the sport and tennis in Canada. This initiative is aimed at creating new opportunities for women and girls in tennis. And to tell us more about this fantastic step forward for tennis here in our country, we're joined today by Tennis Canada's Chair of the Board, Jennifer Bishop. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Jennifer. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the support also over the years with the podcast. You're definitely really great at uh, promoting our, our podcast and what we've been doing. So uh, we really appreciate that as well. It's my pleasure. Tell us about how this new initiative came to be, uh, who was involved in the planning process, and where did the idea first come from? Sure, great question. So. Obviously, gender equity is something that Tennis Canada has been talking about for years. When I came on as a board member and then as lead of tennis development, it became more of a priority for us. And we started working on initiatives to make the sport safer by hiring a safe sport expert, um, initiatives to bring more awareness to um, uh, careers in sport for our young women, whether it's coaching, whether it's being involved in the business of sport, we started doing our own research internally because we found that we were having equal participation at the grassroots level. And then once girls hit a certain age, they were dropping one in three girls were dropping out. I think our research said one in 10 boys, one in three girls. Um, and so these um, initiatives were starting to bubble. And then National Bank came along and absolutely blew us out of the water with their idea for partnering with us on this gender equality initiative. And they have been nothing but absolutely supportive and motivated to actually make a change. And so we are thrilled to have them as partners. The planning process is just beginning, which is really exciting. I mean, I, I'm a firm believer that in order to make progress, you have to first be transparent and honest about your gaps. There's no point in trying to find creative ways to suggest you don't have any, and we've got them. Um, and uh, so we're now at the point where we're launching this campaign. Bianca is our player spokesperson, and we will be getting right into the strategy building and have very high expectations of ourselves. I, obviously, you're, you're still early on with the strategy building, but you mentioned one of these stats that I, I personally found kind of most damning in terms of the research that you guys did into girls' partici participation in the sport, which you just highlighted was one in three girls dropping out of sport across adolescence compared to one in 10 in boys. Um, what do you believe is maybe uh, the root cause of that? And what do you think some of the strategies would be to address an issue like that, keeping girls in sport for longer? It's a good question. Um, I think there are a few different answers to that. So if you look at our research, and of course, I've been involved in tennis in various aspects my whole life. So I've lived it. Young girls will say, and that's who we talk to. It's, I mean, obviously, there's the socioeconomic issue and the cost associated with continuing to play beyond the grassroots level. But for us, things like um, body image, girls want to play with their friends, girls want to be with each other. Um, they don't love competing by themselves. And so um, I think it's really critical for us to look at ways to develop programs that cater to those 
issues, very, very specifically driven to keep girls on court addressing those issues. It's also, you know, I think Judy Murray and others champion this, 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 you have to see it to be it uh, comment. And, you know, for young girls to also see that there is a career in sport. So most of the coaches that we see coming through our system, and it's not exclusive to Canada, it's worldwide and it's across many sports, but the coaches are male. So in addition to wanting to keep these girls playing sport, we also want them to continue to be engaged so that maybe they'll see coaching as a career, high performance coaching as a career, something in the business of sport, reporting, marketing, fundraising, umpiring. So we're really trying to open up as many opportunities as possible to try and keep them engaged. As a father of a, a young daughter who's uh, just five years old, I really applaud the initiative. I think it's fantastic. And it's really surprised me just recently with my daughter, actually, how early young girls notice, hey, there's more boys out there perhaps playing sports than there are girls. We've been watching a lot of Blue Jays games lately. And, and my daughter asked my wife, hey, mommy, why, why are there no girls on the field? And, um, you know, I think it's certainly up to, to parents to also make sure that they're encouraging in the right ways and, and giving opportunities for their daughters to, to see other female athletes leading the way. We've certainly got so many wonderful ones in terms of Tennis Canada, um, fine young female athletes. You must be pretty happy that you've got a great group of athletes to work with at the moment to, to help spearhead this initiative as well, I guess. Yeah, we are so fortunate, truly. We have Bianca, obviously, as a spokesperson who is really thrilled to be a part of this. And we're excited when her timing permits for her to come back to us and, and start engaging because I know that she absolutely loves being involved in mentoring young women players. Um, but, you know, last weekend on Saturday afternoon, we had Bianca, Layla, Rebecca and Jeannie do a Zoom call with 400 young boys and girls from across the country and genuinely motivated and interested in what the youth are doing and helping them through the pandemic and how they survived their ups and downs of tennis. And the, you know, the men did the week before, we had Braden, Milos, Vashik, and Felix. And you know, Braden talked about his path through NCAAs. So we're trying to reach these kids in different ways and you know hopefully we will continue that to do podcasts with coaches podcasts with women in the business of tennis just to show these kids that the opportunities are there and what's really motivating is everybody is in it everybody really really believes in it so it's it's within our organization it's going to be um uh, uh, talked about at the provincial level and the provincial associations, our pro players are going to be championing it. So we're really thrilled. And, uh, you know, again, National Pink, I cannot thank them enough for championing this and, and providing us with the support we need to get through it. You obviously highlighted uh, Bianca Andrescu, who might be our biggest star in the sport of tennis here here in Canada. But uh, as you mentioned, we have so many other faces, Layla Fernandez, still young, Rebecca Marino, who we've recently chatted with. Um, you know, I think in the past for tennis in Canada, we've only had a couple of players sort of here and there that people knew of. Does it help to sort of have these multiple role models that you can shine a light on uh, to maybe increase that uh, participation in girls sport and just just have these images of great athletes for, for girls to look up to? Absolutely, it does. I mean, what Bianca has done for tennis is just incredible. 
obviously Jeannie played a huge role in that. Um, so she sort of raised our profile considerably after the Carling Bassett era. And then Bianca coming in and winning Indian Wells, Rogers Cup, US Open. And yeah, it's absolutely helping lift the Layla's and the Rebecca's and, and obviously hearing Rebecca's story and her being so candid about it is something else that's helping our young girls. Uh, Layla's story, where she came from, where she is today, how humble and kind and grateful she is to be Canadian and for the support. Um, it's, it's fantastic. And, you know, in addition to those women, we now have a group of girls uh, under 16. I think they range from yeah, 14 to 16, 14 to 17, who are the next generation and are among the best in the world for their age. So it's really paying back. And, and uh, we're, we're very, very fortunate and the results are gonna come. And that's, that's gonna be a big part of this um, strategy is you know, what, what, what do the numbers look like in five years? And by way of example, I think we have 40 women a year leaving Canada and playing NCAA tennis. And so one of the things we want to do is make sure that we're building and maintaining a connection with those women. What are they doing when they graduate? Are they going to graduate school? Are they coming back to Canada? What are they doing then? Are they looking for careers? Um, but wouldn't it be great if we had a pool of 100 women uh, to connect with in five years time? So we're really trying to build this at all levels. And so the fact that we have all of these um, uh, uh, women doing so well, but also wanting to contribute so much is absolutely going to be a huge boost to the initiative. Jennifer, I'm curious, is this something that other tennis federations have also looked into or implemented? Um, has there been any dialogue between Tennis Canada and any other of those national sporting bodies, uh, maybe even if it isn't tennis, just other sports as well to look to in terms of how you're going to build this framework from the ground up? It's a good question. I know that certainly in the research phase, our folks talk to other national sporting organizations in Canada and tennis associations around the world. I believe we had discussions with the USTA, Australia. I believe we are probably among the most aggressive when it comes to gender equity. And the ITF, the International Tennis Federation is championing this, which is really, really helpful. Uh, for them to be a leader in this space. And um, their campaign is called Advantage All. And right now I think they're working on uh, helping countries who need support with gender equity programs, getting women in positions of influence and power and ultimately on boards. I think with a goal to start boosting gender equity on the international level as well in their high profile committees and even on their boards. So, while we are doing it, the ITF also has an excellent initiative and hopefully we can be, be a part of that movement and motivate other countries to, to take this on as well. One other aspect of uh, this new initiative you're launching, uh, which you write in detail, is called Equal Voice, just getting an equal voice of opportunity for the women's voice, um, I guess not just in the sport, but also in the broadcasting realm from whether it's a commentator, tournament directors, uh, event coverage across all those platforms. Um, you know, I asked this as a question for uh, as one of two male hosts of Tennis Canada's podcast, Matchpoint Canada, but uh, what do you think maybe we could do as two hosts to uh, help as allies in, in promoting this initiative. Of course, we attempt to have as many uh, women's guests as possible, but uh, any ways we could help and uh, be an ally for this initiative as well. Well, I'd like to start off by saying uh, you already are. 
I watch your <laughs> podcasts. I see how you champion our women. And so we're really, really grateful for that. So, so please keep that up. I believe that a, a very important part of the strategy is uh, what I call the business of tennis. And when I say the business of tennis, I mean careers outside of coaching, umpiring, high performance stream. And that includes media, it includes um, finance. It's not just the board work that I do, but it's all of those aspects. And so I would say to you that as we start to build that strategy, we will be reaching out to folks like you all to say, what can we collectively do together? What is a strategy that we can come up with? Is there a way that we can start changing the narrative around broadcasting a women's tennis? Can we find ways to get more female reporters on site? What do those percentages look like? Do we need to start giving more opportunities in that respect? So it's absolutely going to be an important part of this discussion. And I, I hope you will both be a part of that. Absolutely. And uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this long-term gender equality strategy that Tennis Canada is adopting. Um, you know, you've done a fantastic job sort of, you know, directing the ship and, uh, you know, both yourself and, and women like Stacey Allister, who's uh, moved on to the, the U.S. Open to, to run things there. You also have given uh, young women and, and girls a, a wonderful uh, role model to aspire to be like. So um, thanks for leading the charge. And we look forward to seeing how this looks as it uh, um, comes down the pipeline. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. And there you have it. That was Jennifer Bishop, chair of the board for Tennis Canada, of course, um, one of the important uh, women behind, obviously, this great new gender gap strategy and long-term gender equality strategy, strategy, which is officially launched by Tennis Canada today. And um, something maybe that was a long time coming, but uh, I, I'm glad that we have an organization in this country that's taking an initiative, also just as she mentioned, having like an honest look at the numbers and figures and saying, we have to change this. I was really surprised by some of the numbers, to be perfectly honest. And mm -hmm. I mean, when I was growing up, uh, I've got a brother and a sister in my family. And my sister was always very active playing hockey and um, rugby and sports like that. Um, my wife as well played volleyball throughout high school and university. So, you know, that's not the experience I have in terms of the, the females in, in my life growing up so much. Uh, but when you look at the numbers, they are quite staggering uh, in terms of, you know, only 18% of women aged 16 to 63 are involved in sport. Um, only 2% of Canadian girls aged 12 to 17 get enough physical activity for health benefits. So I, I found these staggering, especially in a country like Canada, that you just kind of assume, hey, we, we live in an active society. You know, I was out biking along the lakeshore here in Toronto today, and I saw lots of men and women, boys and girls, who were out enjoying the... Uh, the summer-like almost weather um, and being active. So um, yeah, these stats are surprising to me and so good for Tennis Canada to sort of acknowledge it head on and, uh, and have a marketing campaign and, a, and an initiative like this as well. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, they'll, they'll be addressing all of these issues as well. And in coaching and leadership roles, I think is going to be a big focus as well. Um, as of now, just National Tennis Center coaches, only 13% are women. I'm, I'm sure they want to change these figures. Um, and of course, it is a long term plan. You're not going to, you know, fix this or change it overnight, which uh, they realize as well. And kudos as well to National Bank Open for obviously uh, committing to this long term. They were uh, the drivers of this new initiative. Uh, so kudos to them for making it happen. 
happen. Uh, we should know this is an important podcast as well for Roland Garros, our official preview of the tournament, the French Open uh, 2021, which is now underway, our second Grand Slam of the season. And we'll start on the men's side, Mike, and the storyline, I guess, that popped and stood out to me for the first time ever, we have Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer in one half of a Grand Slam draw, which is uh, unbelievable to me in a sense that maybe it's never happened. And then that also illustrates their dominance, how often, you know, those guys have been one, two, three and can't all be on one half of the draw. Yeah, I'm so sick of these guys dominating. It's great <laughs> that they're in the top half together. I don't yeah. mind it one bit. Beat each and other up. That's right. That's, that's right. And, uh, you know, I tweeted it out the other day. I said, when was the last time that Nadal, Djokovic and Federer were in the top half or the same half of a Grand Slam draw? And Many people were quick to point out to me that it's never happened before, which I did find kind of surprising. You might have thought back in the day before Federer and Nadal were one, two, but they've been, they were one, two for so long. Mm-hmm. And then by the time Djokovic kind of came along, which, you know, wasn't that much later, but a little bit, um, I, I guess they were just, you know, always in separate halves of these slam draws. Yep, yep. It's uh, we we should acknowledge, and Roger Federer has said this. He's not viewing himself as a contender to win the French Open, and uh, even without him saying that, I don't know that anybody would consider him a contender right now. But he's been very candid in saying he wants to peak for the grass. His plan is, you know, build up match play, be at his very best when Wimbledon comes along. Um, that being said, he's still a very tough out. I wonder how this draw plays in for Novak Djokovic being the number one seed knowing you have to get through Rafael Nadal to get to a final surely surely I I mean I suppose stranger things have happened if Nadal somehow lost prior to the semifinal but uh, Djokovic would have to beat Nadal in a semifinal to get to that finals opportunity and actually Patrick Muradoglu said he feels Djokovic would have a better chance of beating Nadal at this tournament if it's a semifinal as opposed to a final Yeah, I mean, I probably agree with that slightly anyways, because I feel like, yeah, if you make it one round further, you've got just that little bit more confidence. You're that closer, you know, a little bit closer to the finish line. And for Nadal to have the chance to grasp his, what is it now, 27th Roland Garros, Ben? (laughs) Number number 14. Okay, thank you. Right. But but if he gets there, he smells blood and he's, you know, it's, yeah, it's going to be tougher to take it away from him the further he goes. But I honestly don't feel bad for Djokovic. I don't feel bad for Nadal. I feel bad for all these other dudes that are in the top half of the draw that are like, oh my God, we got all three of them up here with us now. Like that is such a huge ask. So my sympathies go out to the other, you know, 61 individuals in that draw. If my math is correct, Um, sucks to be those guys. Yeah, and look, there are a lot of great players on the top half of this draw, we should point out. I mean, Andre Rublev, seeded seventh. He's played well in the clay. Of course, he beat Nadal earlier in the clay court season um, in Monte Carlo, I believe. Aslan Karatsev has been playing well, of course. Yannick Sinner in the mix. We know what he did at the French Open last year, making the quarterfinals. That could be a potential matchup with Nadal. So there are a lot of these great players in the in the top half, Um but is it feasible that one of them could beat a Nadal or a Djokovic? I'm not so sure. I'm looking at some other names, Matteo Berrettini, uh, Lorenzo Musetti, great young talent. I, I'm not sure he's ready to take out Djokovic or anything like that. So you still feel like it's it's almost a formality that we see those two face one another in a semifinal. I'm almost more curious to see who ends up beating Roger Federer. Well, there you go, right? And that'll probably come or should come anyways earlier than the other two if those you know do fall before expectation 
which they probably won't. But, um, you know, Federer, it's funny, the last couple of years, he's had this sort of talk where he downplays his chances. And yeah. in other events, I feel like it's kind of self-depreciating. I almost feel like he's doing it, you know, to just let other people sort of lower their guard a bit, you know. Um, it'll be interesting to me when he transitions to grass, when he is going to be considered a favorite, despite, you know, his absence over the past year and the fact there was no grass court tournaments last summer. How's he going to talk? What's the talk going to be like? How's he going to spin it? Because at that point, you got to just own the fact that you're the greatest grass court player of all time and uh it's it's time to put up or you know or shut up otherwise i guess for Federer at that point but uh in a clay court tournament yeah it's true as you mentioned earlier lower expectations i don't know how far do you see him getting here what's your what's your i, I say quarterfinals really okay oh, sorry 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 i misread my draw here uh, <laughs> he could make quarterfinals honestly i believe that would be uh a potential maybe though right so i i see berrettini being potentially quite difficult if they meet up in the uh what would that be the round of 16 i guess yes so that's a potential round of 16 look i would love to say our canadian felix ogialia seem could make a run to the round of 16 we haven't really seen the form from him on clay but uh i would say he has kind of a favorable draw his first couple of matches so maybe if he gets going he gains a bit of momentum I, I see an interesting second round matchup, actually, if uh, Federer faces Chilich, just a couple of veterans, probably neither of them on their favorite surface. I could see that being a longer match that Federer prevails. And I wonder if he has some trouble with Taylor Fritz, actually, if Taylor Fli- Fritz gets to a third round. Again, Clay not his best surface, but he's played a lot more tennis in 2021. He played pretty well at the front end of the season. I don't know. I, I'm probably writing Federer to lose either third round round of 16. And as you said, probably Matteo Berrettini is, is the best player of that small little section there. And then for me, Djokovic has a really, really nice draw right up to the semifinals. Like I really don't see anybody stopping him from getting there. Yeah, I agree with that uh, as well. And, uh, you know, as we sort of wrap on the top half here, the bottom half is a totally different story, Mm -hmm. uh, especially with uh, a big loss uh, today, an unexpected loss today, I would say. Uh, in Dominic team going out in the first round. And, and while my expectations and I think many for team were, were lowered given his recent play um, didn't have him going out this early. No, no. And this is uh, I just want to point out Pablo Andohar who rallied from down two sets to love winning this match four six five seven six three six four six four. Andohar who's I believe career high just inside the top 40 maybe he got to about number 35 um, I've read he's had three separate elbow surgeries he hasn't been inside the top 50 since 2015 and in the last two weeks he's recorded wins over Roger Federer and Dominic Team. talk about a great couple of weeks for a player who's now 35 years old as well like veteran Spanish player suddenly producing some of the best tennis of his career so kudos to him for the big upset team now is nine and eight in 2021 so this is is just hard to so hard to believe and yeah i watched his post-match press conference and he said something to the effect that since winning the u.s open uh he's he's found it tough to sort of uh i don't know if if the you know that he had it tough to accept that win or accept what that did for his career or right stratosphere that kind of put him into but that he almost i don't know how you felt but i kind of felt he was saying like the weight of being a grand slam champion he feels that when he goes into a slam. 
Yeah, and you, you would hope it would almost have the opposite effect. You would hope it would be, because initially you said it was kind of a weight off his shoulder to finally win that first Grand Slam. You'd think maybe this is going to free him up to play even looser, more powerful tennis and, and really take over. And I, I kind of wonder if he overplayed a bit in 2020. He was playing so many exhibition matches during the break, so many tournaments back, and he's just looked a little listless in 2021. I, I hope he can uh, rest and recuperate. I know grass isn't his best surface, but maybe he can uh, play some better tennis on the hard courts later this summer. Uh, just talking about the bottom half here, um, one player I love, and we've talked about him a little bit, uh, beyond Stefano Tsitsipas, we'll get to him, is Casper uh, Ruud, the Norwegian, is a fantastic clay court player. We already know that. And now a Dominic team out, that has really opened up his section that you wonder, can he make a push to you know, a quarterfinal, maybe even a semifinal here? Yeah, what's the best a Norwegian's done in a Grand Slam? And correct me if I'm forgetting some obvious Norwegian who's a multiple slam winner, but, uh, you know, must be pretty cool for for their country. And agreed, when I look at the draw, and by the way, I love pre-filling out draws at the start of a Grand Slam tournament. Yep. I don't know about you. I love printing the blank sort of canvas and, you know, carefully. My best writing, the best printing I do at any point in the year is at the four Grand Slams. And I do it so meticulously and carefully yep. If my wife ever saw the way I printed on these draw sheets, she'd be like, <laughs> why do you do the grocery list with your chicken scratch, you know? So I hide them from her. Yeah. But it really is, you know, I'm so careful with them because they're just this beautiful, you know, um, uh, land of opportunity, if you will, for the next two weeks. Yeah, I suppose that's one one thing we've lost in the internet age is everything is being filled out electronically. Uh, so kudos to you that you actually print out the official draw and, and fill Old it school. out. I used to do that years ago. I wish I still did. What do you uh, do now? You just wait for the tournament to update it or what? Uh, I'm actually on a bracket here called Tennis Draw Challenge and have filled out both draws. So I have been following along and actually had a pretty good first day minus that Dominic team upset. So this is the difference between my generation and yours, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, as we said, though, Stefano Tsitsipas, I feel like, um, you know, Novak Djokovic, he's the number one seed. To me, Stefano Tsitsipas, though, I have him as basically the second contender beyond behind Nadal to win this thing. Reason being, you know, if Nadal and Djokovic beat each other up for three and a half, four hours in a semifinal and Tsitsipas has a, a more comfortable road to a final, maybe it's realistic he has a shot to win this thing. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's definitely got a shot to win it based on his fantastic play this year. And I think you've got the, the stats. Uh, what is he leading the tour with? How many wins? 30 yeah, wins? 33 wins this season. He just yeah. won the title in Lyon, won the title in Monte Carlo. He had a match point against Nadal in Barcelona. So he's really, you could argue, he's had the second best clay court season of, of anybody and one of the best seasons of anybody so far as well in 2021. Yeah, this is a, I mean, this is a future slam winner. We know that already, you know, how soon that's going to happen is, is up for debate, but uh, he's got a good draw. He's in the right half of the draw. Um, Medvedev in the, what would that be in the quarters uh, or sorry, in the semis, perhaps. Right. Zverev, sorry, Zverev in the semis, Medvedev in the, in the quarters. Um, but yeah, right now against any of those guys, I, you know, he'd be the favorite, I think. Right. Yeah, and I'm sure there are many who would have questions. Can Daniil Medvedev make a quarterfinal at the French Open? Uh, he doesn't like the clay. He hasn't played well in his lead-up. You would think maybe he, he would start to figure out the surface. He talked about feeling great in practice at Roland Garros, that he was developing a bit of a comfort level. Um, 
maybe the draw is a bit favor- favorable for him to possibly make a quarterfinal, but I see Christian Guerin. He's been playing very good tennis. He could maybe make a quarterfinal here. And then uh, other players, I guess, in this bottom half of the draw that I'm looking at, uh, I kind of like Katie Shikori to maybe make a run here. Oh, uh, Ben, I knew you were going to say that. Come on. Did you? There's, there's no way. There's no way. How many sets today? Four or five? He took five, yeah. but... Look, he survived, you know, he survived a tough first round match. Um, He's played relatively well in the lead up. You know, he pushed Nadal three sets in Barcelona, which I thought was good. Actually, he beat Garen there too. Um, Madrid, he beat Hatchinov. Yeah, well, he's got Hatchinov next, and then he's going to have RBA. And then you're going to be faced with the dilemma of two of the players you like in RBA and Nishikori going head-to-head, perhaps. (laughs) How will you handle that pressure? Yeah, so I have Nishikori winning that match. And uh, Bautista Agu, no no slight to him at all. Uh, He's a terrific player. But his better results have actually, I found, come on the hard-court surfaces, especially at Grand Slams. I don't know. I, Nishikori's made three quarterfinals at the French Open in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like he's playing a lot better tennis. I, I feel like he should be seeded if he had more play. Obviously, he's, he's returned from injuries. I wouldn't be stunned by like at least a round of 16 here. I like a lot of your takes. I'm not going to be joining you on this one, but that's okay. okay. You know, differences should be, you know, celebrated and it'd be boring <laughs> if we always agreed with each other. Uh, I just want to say one note about Zverev is... Uh, I still don't have the confidence with him in the slams, despite his U.S. Open final appearance uh, last year. And uh, I do want to mention, I don't want to talk about him too much because yep. we know how I feel. But uh, I do want to talk about his favorite reporter, Jonathan Pinfield, who has joined us in the past. And I don't know if anyone caught these rare press conference today, but Jonathan uh, joined in from a grocery store in Paris where he hadn't quite finished his daily shopping and hadn't made it back to his hotel for the virtual presser. And I, I got a kick out of that. A, a grocery <laughs> store press conference at a slam. That's got to be a first, I think. That's fantastic. I, I find uh, Jonathan Pinfield always asks some of the most insightful questions at these press conferences, especially at the French Open. So if you ever have, have a chance to listen to any of these press conferences, wait for the very distinctive Yorkshire accent, and you'll realize it's him asking the question. Uh, we'll wrap up on the men's side. Well, who do you have in the final? Uh, you don't have to. Yeah, I suppose oh, you, you can give me a winner. You didn't tell me we were going to do that. Yeah, oh. that's true. Who do I have in the final? Well, Nadal's going to come through. I'd be crazy to pick against Nadal. And on the other side, oh, I'm so boring. Uh, yeah, CC Pass. You got to go with CC Pass the way he's playing, right? Yeah. So, there you go. Yeah, I have. Uh, I have the identical final. I, I'm oh, not gonna we're lie. So, we're so dull. All right, what did you want me to say? I could go with a Christian Garin Yannick Sinner final, maybe. You know, <laughs> yeah, that, or do you have alternate do, universe final? Do you have a player, I guess, outside of the top ten who is kind of a big dark horse for you at this tournament to make a run, like round of sixteen, better kind of run? Uh, I don't know. Maybe Fanini catches lightning in a bottle and can actually keep his mind together for two weeks. I, I mean, that's what is he a late twenties kind of seed right now? Yeah, I think that's right. That's and Christian Guerin, who's uh, what's he seated here? Twenty. I believe he's twenty-one or twenty-two. Yeah, he's had good results on clay, so maybe him. 
Okay. Okay. I like that. I'll, I'll stick with my Ed Nishikori dark horse pick. Oh Lord. Okay. <laughs> Did you put that in the Sportsnet article you wrote recently previewing? No, actually I didn't. I didn't want to put That's such good. a hot take in there. Uh, <laughs> you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We've had Jennifer Bishop on this episode, and now we're giving you our Roland Garros preview for 2021. And we'll shift over to the women's side, which I, I think we can both agree is a lot more interesting in terms of who could win this tournament, because I think there are so uh, many players who are in the mix in contention, uh, very difficult to predict a lot of great storylines already. We've had some great matches already from uh, the opening day and uh, just starting on the top half, obviously Ashley Barty, uh, we've talked about the fantastic season she's had and she's, she's had success on all surfaces. And of course she has to be feeling good returning to front to the French open. She won here just two seasons ago. So worthy number one, and certainly one of the top contenders, I think to win this title. Absolutely. And with a straight set win over Sviantec last year's French open winner uh, in Madrid. So that's got to make her feel pretty good. Uh, when I look at the top part of the draw, not, not even the top quarter, but the top, uh, what would you say? The top eighth, I guess the top, uh, top 16, top eight. Yeah, whatever there, that top part of the draw. Yeah. It's really interesting because aside from Ash Barty, obviously, you've got some pretty funky players. You've got Yulia Putinseva, mm-hmm. uh, Coco Goff, uh, Shea Su Wei, Jennifer Brady. I mean, that's just in the top, you know, very top section. So there's going to be some fun matches in there. Um, I see a Barty Goff encounter, which would be a, a repeat. They played recently. Uh, and Barty, I believe, had to withdraw with an injury there. Yes. Um, but that would be cool to see again as well. So, yeah, so many great early round matches in the women's draw and so many possibilities. I, you know, I think I said this the other day to somebody. There's about 20 different players in this draw who could make it to the finals. And it wouldn't even surprise me, not even in the least. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And uh, for me right now, Coco Goff, um, she's playing amazing tennis. If you think about what she's done the past few weeks coming in, leading up to Roland Garros, uh, she won that Parma Challenger in Italy, a big, big title there. Um, and yeah, the previous week in Rome in Italy, of course, um, you know, Ash Barty did have to retire with the injury while she was ahead, but she had impressive wins there. I mean, she beat Sakari in three sets. She defeated Arena Sabalenka, who for me is another great contender to win this title, and then uh, played a tight two sets against Spiontek, who is obviously one of our contenders. So um, I, I think Goff has a great opportunity, certainly to make the round of 16. And I think we'll relish the chance to play Barty again, a healthy Barty. And that could be a, a very competitive matchup if it happens. Yeah, and we should also mention in the doubles world for Coco Goff, she's playing doubles with Venus Williams. So how cool is that? Yeah. Two Americans, uh, I'm going to say the oldest American in the draw and the youngest American in the draw. That's a guess, but I think it's a pretty safe guess. Um, And so that'll be fun to watch those two together and and just think how much Coco can learn from her time with Venus, you know, preparing for their matches, practicing together and, and being together on the court. So in terms of, you know, mental frame of mind, having that comfort, of having, you know, one of the greatest American tennis players of all time with you, um, you know, maybe that rubs off a little bit and, uh, and helps her out too. Yeah. I love that doubles tandem, a uh, handful of other, obviously top players on this top half of the draw we should discuss. 
Alina Svitolina is the fifth seed here. I I feel like she's not being taken seriously as a contender to win this title. And and I think that's just kind of uh, recency bias. Well, not just recency bias, just the history of her not quite making that next step in Grand Slams. She did well at the French uh, last year, I believe. Uh, was it quarters or semifinals? Um, so she's gone deep at this event before, but uh, are, are you buying stock on Svitolina at this point? <laughs> well, first of all, I hope Svitolina's highlight for Roland Garros isn't the pre-tournament practice video she posted with Gael Monfils getting oh, hit by Roger Federer when he wound <laughs> up with Monfils on the wall, hit yeah. him right in the thigh. It was very close to the groin, so I'm not quite sure. But yeah. either way, I hope that doesn't turn out to be your highlight. And... Uh, Look, Svitolina has made slow but steady progress at the slams, in my opinion, over the last couple of years, uh, starting to make some deeper results. Um, she's in her, what, mid to late 20s now, so there's still time. And yep, 26. Um, I always kind of think of her and Karolina Pliskova in the same breath in terms of two very talented women who have yet to win a Grand Slam. I don't buy the, um, you know, the, the, the chance of Pliskova doing it. But I do think Svitolina could still have that happen. And, um, and she's got a nice draw, I think, you know, getting to the, the quarters anyways before facing perhaps Ashley Barty. Um, and if you get there, I think anything's possible with, with the way you're playing. So um, I do consider her in my top eight, I would say, actually, for, for this title. Yeah, she does have a nice draw. I, I would agree with that assessment. She was in the quarterfinals last year, and I recall she had such a great opportunity facing Nadia Podoroska, who was uh, a complete unknown at the time. You thought, wow, um, the table is set for maybe Svitolina to reach a French Open final. Didn't happen there, but she played good tennis um, and certainly a quarterfinal possibility with a, a matchup maybe looming with a Barty or a Coco Goff, who knows. Uh, I just want to mention this one match, which, which might be happening while you're listening to this podcast Sophia Cannon fourth seed and has had a very tough 2021 facing the 2017 French Open champion Yelena Ostapenko this is like a real popcorn matchup uh, for the first round and I'm actually leaning Ostapenko for this one yeah I'll go out there and say upset alert on that one and you know we don't know yet because it hasn't happened but uh, as you mentioned by the time you're listening to this you can call us on our pick or not but yeah I say based on you know Kennan's uh, confidence and results lately um, I'd go with Ostapenko on this one yeah yeah uh, that that certainly could happen um, still on the top half um, in that second quarter Iga Spiontek seated eighth I think she has a relatively nice draw. Garbina Muguruza obviously was so fantastic on the hard courts uh, through the front end of the season, had a bit of an injury setback, but if she's returning here healthy, you think Muguruza Sviantec is a potential, uh, I believe that would be a round of 16 matchup. That could be uh, one epic fight if those two meet one another. Yeah, and I don't know what their head-to-head is, but I just can't believe Sviantec is, is into the top 10 so quickly. Like, wow, did that ever happen fast over the yep. course of the, the past year? I mean, winning a Grand Slam will definitely have that effect on you, but uh, definitely going to have fun watching her. And then the bottom half, holy smokes, there's so much going on down there, right? You've got Serena down there. you got Sabalenka, um, Osaka, and we'll talk about Osaka shortly, and Bianca Andreescu. So you, you tell me where you want to start because there's so many storylines here. Well, why don't we start with our Canadian, Bianca Andreescu, and uh, start on, to me, a very positive note, because I I think this is such a wonderful draw. The best draw you really could ask for coming into a tournament where you've only played two clay court matches 
in your lead up just a week prior um, at the Strasbourg event. So Bianca Andreescu um, looks like she's going to have a relatively easy time, I want to say, against Tamara Zadonsek first round. And then you look at the players in waiting, possibly American Madison Brangle, um, Sinia Co- uh, Boskova, pardon me, or perhaps Kuder Matova. I don't, this, this draw is like shaking out beautifully for Bianca Andreescu. You think if she's healthy and gains some momentum um, from, say, two or three wins, she could realistically make a deep run here. Yeah, and even round of 16 pairs her up with Benchage, who hasn't really been inspiring much confidence lately. Right. Round after that, Osaka, who's never made it past the third round at the French, so will she even be there? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, Von Drusova, I mean, she made the finals a couple of years ago, but hasn't done anything either, uh, you know, since she's come back from that injury to really solidify for me that she's a legitimate threat. So if Bianca was healthy, um, and there was no, you know, concerns over that potential abdominal injury in, in Strasbourg, I would say, man, you could put her right through to the semis. Um, but I feel like that's a big ask, given the fact she hasn't been able to get much match time, not a lot of time on the clay courts either. And we don't know about her health, but you could say that all the time about Bianca, unfortunately. But, you know, her mindset, I mean, I spoke with her just a few days ago and before she withdrew from the event, but she was sounding like she was in a great place mentally. Um, we've seen her reset time and time again with a layoff and, and come up with some fantastic tennis. So got to love her draw. And, uh, with the way that she's capable of playing, nothing would surprise me with her if she did end up in the final four or the final eight here. Yeah, I completely agree. And she'll also be the beneficiary of that extra day off, especially when you're, you're having kind of nagging health injuries. If she's worried about a small abdominal issue, it's going to make a, a huge difference uh, to get a day off in between matches, I think, for Andrescu, um, rather than you look at all that tennis she played in a short period of time in Miami, which finally culminated in that sort of foot injury ankle issue in the final against Ash, Ash Barty. She's not going to play that much tennis in, in probably a two week time frame. So I, I think that's going to really help her out to get that extra day off, make sure she's feeling good and healthy. We'll get to Naomi Osaka, who is the number two seed in the draw. And we'll get to the talking point, of course, that everybody is discussing right now is she won't be doing um, any press conferences whatsoever. She made the announcement ahead of time with a statement saying um, for mental health reasons, uh, she didn't want to subject herself to any type of negativity that we sometimes witness, obviously in post-match press conferences. So uh, she's opted not to do any of them. Um, Mike, what is your take on this? Are you okay with it? Does it bother you? And, and it's a tough question that, I grapple with because we're both journalists. Yeah. And, uh, you know, unfortunately we're not credentialed this year for the French open. Uh, so I want to say, Hey, if I can't talk to Naomi Osaka, nobody can talk to Naomi <laughs> Osaka. And that maybe makes me feel just slightly better, but you know, in all seriousness, cause it is a serious topic. Um, you know, it's, it's related to mental health. And I see so many people jumping on her and giving her a hard time and, Look, I I don't have major mental health issues, and I would go out to say that all these people that are pointing the finger and judging her probably don't either. And so I think it's very simple for people who, you know, haven't experienced it or don't have a family member who's experienced it to really lack that empathy and, uh, you know, make a snap judgment without putting themselves in, in her shoes. And look, it's not like she said she's never doing press again. Sounds like right now she's in a place where she doesn't feel like she can handle it. She's facing the music, the punishment, which is the fine, which they said is $15,000. 
And uh, it doesn't matter to me how much money Naomi's made over her last season. That's the fine they've given her. That's the punishment she gets. Um, So to go any further than that, and look, I'm not saying I completely 100% agree or can understand or can, you know, see it from her point of view. I do believe that players have, you know, an obligation. I do believe that if players didn't do press, uh, you know, there'd be not much for the media there to, to be able to, to take and draw Correct. for their articles and their, their press hits and whatnot. There wouldn't be much for the fans to listen to. But this is one player who's saying this, you know. The other 127 players in the women's draw, as far as I know, are going to do press if they're asked to do it. The tournament will go on. The show will go on. And this is making a statement that I feel like if we stand back and look at the statement, maybe some good can come from this in the sense what, you know, uh, supports can the WTA can the ATP, can the Grand Slams, you know, tennis's governing bodies put into place to help players feel more at ease? Because look, when I go back and think of when I was younger, I hated speaking in public. I could never have done a podcast when I was Naomi Osaka's age. You know, that comes with experience and working on things and feeling more comfortable, knowing yourself, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's not easy for these players to be there in front of the camera in front of all these questions experienced journalists journalists that are out there just to get a sound bite or to sort of goad you into saying something that's going to get you in trouble mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of potential to to mess up in press and i think for young players who maybe don't have that inner confidence it's a really intimidating place to go so let's try and have a little bit of sympathy let's think of what are some things that we can do as members of the media people who work at tournaments organizers you know governing bodies to make it a more welcoming place for players. And I think we'll see Naomi Osaka doing press again soon, but the statement she's made here could really enact some change. And that to me is the most important thing to come out of this. And that's what I think we should focus on. Yeah, very, very well said. And uh, look, I I should say, and I'm sure you agree, um, we have so many great colleagues in the sport of tennis, so many great journalists. So we've formed a lot of relationships with many of these journalists who are in press conferences, they ask, strong uh, quality questions. They're not there to ruffle feathers. They're not there to antagonize or interrogate players. And from my perspective, you know, 90, 95% of tennis journalists are, are doing their, doing their best and they're not, co- not trying to cause trouble. It's always that very small percentage where, where they're offering up those kind of cringe questions and it's, it's offered up merely to, you know, generate a reaction and potentially generate clickbait. And one of the issues right now, I think, in social media, too, is uh, mannerisms of a player matter. And sometimes when you just read a quote, you just read 10 words that an athlete said, you didn't actually see them speak it. You didn't see the entire answer. Uh, things can get taken out of context. And I think Naomi Osaka chose the French Open for a specific reason uh, of her not Uh, doing media press conferences, she's really struggled at the French Open. And I don't think she wants to consume the negativity of feeling like she has to field all these questions about why haven't you won matches on clay? What is it about clay that makes it so you can't deliver? I I think she wants to avoid that negativity in her head. She doesn't want to go into that bad headspace, just wants to focus on her tennis. Uh, From my understanding as well, uh, you know, if they're post-match interviews, she will give a quote or two. I don't think she's avoiding those. So it's it's just the press conferences. And I should say, um, you know, $15,000 fine. We're finding players more for failing to live up to media obligations that we're finding uh, Damir Zumer, for example, for berating and threatening chair umpires. 
So it, it makes you question sometimes the sports priorities, the organization's priorities of how they're looking at these athletes and, and, you know, what behaviors were, were most insulted by what's a bigger problem, not fulfilling a media obligation going to a press conferences or, or berating umpires, uh, berating officials, slamming rackets, causing trouble on the court. So I have a big problem with that. I think it's rather hypocritical. I agree. And, and how many times do you see players who go in and do their press and they do it so poorly or unprofessionally? Uh, you know, Nick Kyrgios always comes to mind to me after sure. he loses. He is one surly dude to talk to in press and you won't get anything out of him. And it is, yeah, very unprofessional. It's not beneficial to anybody who's in there. So, I mean, sure, Naomi could go into press and just mail it in and say, I'm not answering that. No comment, whatever, or just stone cold, sil- stone cold silence. But she's making a statement. And I think the statement, like I said earlier, could lead to good things. What are some things? Perhaps more media training for players as they're coming on to the professional tour. Perhaps a little bit more time in between when the match ends and when they come in for press for them to digest what's happened. Um, Perhaps more sports psychologists, therapists on site for players to talk to if they are feeling that their mental health is being negatively impacted. And also one, and as you mentioned, 90%, 95% of media are doing a great job, I, I would agree. But for the 5 to 10%, perhaps you aren't, maybe some more consequences where we see their credentials revoked when they ask questions that are only designed to instigate something um, and incite the player and, and get a clickbait type answer. So those are just off the top of my head. I really thought about this a long time before tweeting out about it the other night. It, it really made me think it's one of the first times I've tweeted out like multiple, you know, a thread of comments. And I really took some time into thinking about it because it really impacted uh, me and it really uh, caused me to think more than I normally do at a deeper level about a player's comments and what the bigger picture was. So I would implore everybody to try and do that. You don't have to agree with her decision. Yeah, We do have to accept it. And how can we move on? take what she's saying to heart and put some positive change in there to help other players. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It certainly evoked a a great discussion. And I I think that's what Osaka wanted. And she actually tweeted uh, about how, how these actions, if you're angry, you know, you know, action and, and this kind of thing change is uncomfortable is what she said i believe in her tweet and that's true uh and that was well said so we'll see if we do get any changes um that she might be aspiring for uh in a press conference level uh just looking a little more on the bottom half of this draw for osaka she did pick up a win in her first round against patricia maria tig i have a dark horse name for you on the bottom half of the draw to potentially give osaka trouble and maybe make a run paula bedosa who is a very, very good clay court player and has been playing some of her best tennis on clay. And she just picked up a title in Serbia playing quality tennis there. Um, she made the semifinals of Madrid with nice wins over Sevastova, Bencic, uh, before losing to Ash Barty. So this is a Spanish player who is surely high on confidence coming here. And I think that would be a tough matchup for Osaka where we've acknowledged clay is not the best surface for her. Yeah, I put her down as well as a dark horse pick. And uh, my math isn't very good, Ben, but I see her here with a number 33 next to her name in the draw as a seed. And uh, how does one acquire a 33rd seed uh, when there's normally only 32? Is that because someone withdrew? or what? I believe so. But uh, yes, something is off with that number. Something is certainly amiss. <laughs> that there should not be a 33rd seed. Um 
but currently Ekaterina Alexandrova is the 32nd seed for what it's worth. Yeah. Anyhow, I do see Bedosa potentially coming out of that section. Um, Elise Mertens also is a name that I want to throw out there as someone who, again, she's seeded. So I don't know if we can use that expression, dark horse, but made the semis uh, a couple of years ago at the French Open. So there's someone I think who could cause a little bit of difficulty as well. And uh, when I look at the draw, I think she's got a nice little path to the quarterfinals at least. So. I, yeah, I, I certainly agree. Um, other Canadian we should touch on, and she played a terrific first-round match. Leila Fernandez defeating Anastasia Potapova 6-2, 6-1 in about an hour's time. Didn't face a break point on serve, so very confident win to start her French Open. She's played well at the French in the past. Um, of course, a junior French Open champion. She'll get Madison Keys next. And look, Layla, you know, she won her first title this season in Monterey. I, I felt like things slowed down a little bit after what she did at Billie Jean King Cup, but this has to be a great win to, to jumpstart her tournament here. And maybe she can make a little bit of a run. And it's all about gaining experience at this point for Layla Annie Fernandez. And so I don't have a problem with her facing some tough players, you know, right off the bat at Madison Keys second round. Uh, Azarenka perhaps in the third round, mm-hmm. Sabalenka maybe in the fourth. Um, you know, this is all going to build character. If she can take out one of those players, I see that as a huge step forward for her. And, um, you know, she had a good French Open back in the fall. It feels so strange to say that. Yep. But back in you know September, October, whenever it was there, I guess a little bit of both, um, where she made the, uh, what was it, the third round, I believe, best showing at a, at a slam in singles. And... Um, and so I think, you know, whether she matches that or not here, um, we're looking big picture with Leila Annie Fernandez and the fact that she can take out an opponent like Potapova, you know, with a scoreline like that so quickly. I mean, she's dialed in, she's fierce and nothing but good things ahead, I think, for Leila Annie Fernandez. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I'm personally ready to get to our picks, uh, and I, I haven't really even spoken about the player I'm, I'm picking to win the French Open on the women's side, uh, but she was your title winner in Madrid. I think she's won eight WTA titles now dated back to the front end of 2019, and I've just been waiting for the big Grand Slam result from her, and I, I feel like Arena Sabalenka is eventually going to seize this moment, and what better time than now? She's playing some of the best tennis of her career. I think the draw is relatively favorable. She doesn't have to worry about a Sviantec or a Barty, uh, perhaps a Petra Kvitova or maybe a Serena lingers. Maybe Leila Fernandez gives her plenty of trouble. But uh, I, I like how the bottom half the draw looks for Sabalenka, that there's certainly potential here to get to a final and, and win this title. I could see that. Uh, I'm going to go myself with uh, Serena. No, I'm just kidding. But it is kind of funny. It does say something that we don't really have Serena Williams as one of our big talking points, Mm -hmm. uh, considering she's a 23-time Grand Slam champion and has won the French multiple times. Uh, I'm not inspired with confidence right now. I don't think she's had enough match play, but nothing would surprise me with Serena either. Let's just say that. Um, So, But if I had to pick someone, Again, it's going to be more of like the boring answer. I'm sorry, but uh, Sviantek, I think, has a nice draw. I mm-hmm. see her getting through to the semifinals. And if she's there, Barty, are there still some you know health concerns? I'm not sure, but I'm going to go with Sviantek to prove that it was no fluke what happened, uh, you know, just about uh, six, seven, what, eight months ago. 
Okay. I, I, I love that pick. I mean, when you beat Carolina Pliskova in a final six love, six love, and only lose 13 points, you certainly grab my attention. I should note in my, my bracket that I built, I had Sviantek in the final. So Sviantek Sabalenka would be an awesome final. I think just a lot of power hitting. Um, and as we said, Bianca, the way this draw has, has laid out for her semifinals could even be possible. Maybe even further. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Nothing. You know, we put nothing past Bianca and we, we hope for the best. Hey, we're a Canadian podcast. It's okay to root for the Canadians, right? It gives us more to talk about and gets us a few more listeners. The, the deeper the tournament goes. Yeah, exactly. Deeper the tournament goes, the more Canadians we'd love to see in the draw. Um, that is our hope. This has been a Roland Garros preview and we thank uh, Jennifer Bishop, uh, chair of the board at Tennis Canada for joining us to discuss the uh, gender initiative, uh, equality initiative that Tennis Canada has launched with National Bank Open. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time.